Hello, and welcome to another edition of St. Paul's Letters to America. So I'm your host, Ray Gerard. With me in studio is Mike. Can I call you a sidekick? Sure. I, I th- that's exciting. I've never been one of those before. That is so cool. <laughs> it's my illustrious sidekick, <laughs> Bob Henicus. And um, so we're here for another edition of St. Paul's Letters to America, or as this program otherwise might be called, Truth Be Told. Why? Well, if St. Paul were alive today and wrote a letter to us here in America, he would tell us things that were and are true. Because the truth does not change. It does not change with the times, nor does it change from place to place. Today, many people do not even believe there is truth. The truth is what they make it, they say. The The truth is fluid, they say. The truth needs to mold to the moment, they say. So how can we know if there is truth? And if there is truth, how can we know it when we see it? Well, a couple of ways. One is to use our own reason, to examine and ask what makes sense. Another is to look at what produces good results, what makes us feel peace, or perhaps more harmony with other people. And this is what we do here. Ask those, we ask those questions. So let's get to it. Now, this program is being brought to you in conjunction with uh, St. Joseph Radio and the St. Joseph Evangelization Network, who kindly lend us their studios to record this broadcast. So today, what are we going to talk about? Uh, well, we're going to talk about a district attorney in Manhattan known as Elvin Bragg. And he made the news recently because... There's a man who was attacked in a convenience store in New York City. He was older, 61 years old, and he was behind a counter. And uh, there was a disagreement over the service. As I understand it, uh, there was a man, his wife, and a child, and um, they could not pay for something. And so the storekeeper, this 61-year-old gentleman named Jose, Jose Alba, uh, took, uh, the, they had a product of some sort, I think a bag of chips or something, and he took it back. And apparently it was in um, the hands or a bag or something that belonged to, I think it was a nine year, their nine-year-old child. So he removed this bag of chips. And uh, the gentleman got angry. I think his, the wife and gentleman both got angry. And the, the gentleman went behind this counter and started to physically assault this man. And there's a video of it, and it was rather uh, severe. And the man was in fear uh, for his life. That's, you know, what he says. And he grabbed a knife, and he stabbed the man attacking him. And this man actually died. The wife also had a knife, and she stabbed uh, the 61-year-old store clerk. Uh, she stabbed him, but not seriously, apparently. And anyway, um, the district attorney of Manhattan then proceeded to charge this man with second-degree murder. Originally, he had to post uh, the DA asked for $500,000 bail. Uh, it was granted at 250000 And then there was a public outcry over this incident, a public outcry because the man was defending himself. And so the District attorney reduced the bail to $50,000. Well, why is this such a big deal? Well, this uh, district attorney in Manhattan has made quite a reputation for himself. 
He is what's known as a progressive prosecutor. There are district attorneys around the country in a lot of major American cities. One was recently recalled and tossed out of office in San Francisco. But there are other so-called progressive district attorneys, progressive prosecutors, as the term is used, in cities like Philadelphia, Chicago, Los Angeles, and other places. And well, what do they? You know, what are the types of things uh, that they believe in? Well, uh, they believe in a system of justice that is reformed. They believe that. There are a lot of inequalities in the way justice is administered in our country today. That there is mass incarceration for people in minority communities, much more so than other segments of the population. And that, there, and that the system is not fair. And so they seek to reform the system and make it more fair. Now, Mr. Bragg, the attorney in, in, uh, in Manhattan who has Oh, come under, come under a lot of fire. There's a lot of public outcry both for and against the way he is practicing his job. But if we go to the man himself and we find out a little bit about him, we find that, you know, he was raised uh, in a uh, faith-based uh, household. He said his dad helped run homeless shelters in the Urban League. He says, as a child, I remember walking the streets of Manhattan with him and talking with the people who spent nights in homeless shelters. He always focused on the people. That was his ministry. Love thy neighbor as you love yourself. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. Clothe the naked, feed the hungry, take care of those in prison, and yes, house the homeless. These are his uh, proclaimed motivations. And of course, they are superb motivations. But as a prosecutor, you have a job to um, presumably put people in jail who do not agree to abide by the laws of society. And if your reform of the justice system includes not putting people in jail, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? That is, that is a question we've, we face today. As I say, there are these so-called progressive prosecutors in a lot, a lot of major American cities. And they believe similar things. So is this right? Is this not? From a Catholic perspective, I mean, that, that is really what we're about here on this program all the time, to look at the writings of St. Paul, to look at the teachings of the Catholic Church, and look at something going on in our society today and say, is this right? Is this wrong? Is this consistent with what we're supposed to believe, what we, hopefully what we do believe as Catholics? Or is it not consistent? How are we to know what is right? And so that, that's, what we, uh, that's what we seek to do, and that's what we're going to hopefully do with this uh, particular program. Now, we do have uh, some uh, thoughts from St. Paul to guide us in this matter. And I'm going to, uh, I'm going to provide them to you now. Among the things St. Paul says, he says, Rulers, know that you have a master in heaven and that with him there is no partiality. Let love be sincere. Hate what is evil. Hold on to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. 
The commandments, you shall not kill, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other commandment there may be, are summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no evil to the neighbor. Hence, love is the fulfillment of the law. We pray to God that you may not do evil, not that we may appear to have passed the test, but that you may do what is right, even though we may seem to have failed. What we pray for is your improvement. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind because of evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his fleshly body through his death to present you holy without blemish, blemish and irreproachable before him. Now why do we turn to these thoughts from St. Paul? Do no evil. Progressive prosecutors believe in extending kindness to people who, you know, but for the grace of God, but, you know, I mean, if, if we were in their shoes, perhaps we would do many of the things that they do. Uh, if they were born into a better lifestyle, maybe they would never have done any of the things that they do. And is it not right to extend them kindness? Love thy neighbor. I mean, one of the ideas St. Paul um, gave us that we just quoted was love thy neighbor. Is that not exactly what progressive prosecutors are doing? No. And yes. But no in an, in an important sense. I mean, yes, sure, of course, offering kindness to people is Christ's mission. But Christ also believed something else. And he also told us something else. You have to follow him. If you want mercy, you have to want it. You have to ask for it. And if you just simply show kindness to people who are not looking uh, for kindness in return, they do something that harms another person, whether you steal a bag of chips or whatever else it may be, um, you are harming another person. There's, there's, there are stories, this, this Manhattan DA, like I said, he's a source of controversy because among other things, there was one guy who got arrested, let out, arrested, laid out. He was a bank robber. And he committed six robberies, one right after another, all in a row. You have a, a shoplifter who's been arrested and let out immediately with no bail, let out like 80, 90 times in a row to the point where she makes her, she describes herself as a person who makes her living stealing from other people. These do hurt other, this does hurt other people, and it hurts the person committing these offenses. Is this not a situation where you're enabling them to do more. If someone is not looking for forgiveness, is not looking for mercy, but does something that wrongs another person and then gets uh, condoned for it, maybe patted on the back, and effectively do not think that they're getting a pat on the back for it, then what is the message that is being sent? Is not the message being sent, this is okay. If you can get arrested 80, 90 times in a row and not go to jail. Are you not, how can you not think, as far as society is concerned, this is okay? And if you're thinking this is, I mean, really, how can you not think that? I, I, I mean, how can you not think that nobody cares? That this is okay? I am actually justified in what I am doing. Society is unfair. 
society has beaten me down, I am justified in doing this. Now, a lot of times we all do, you know, we all do things that, you know, are not admirable, things that we may be sorry for. And often enough, our immediate reaction is to try to justify what we did, to rationalize it. Well, this person did this to me or whatever else it may be. That's our natural reaction. First, we justify it. It's not easy for us to admit that we've, we've done something wrong. And so, our, you know, if someone were to tell you, well, you know, okay, fine. You know, you, you, you hit that person, they hit you first, you hit that person. Yeah, you were justified. You know, somebody, well, you know what? It, you don't have to go to confession for that. You hit somebody, but you don't both have to go to jail. I mean, you're going to feel this is okay. It's just, I'm, I'm justified. It'll feed that natural desire to feel justified. In essence, when someone does something and then gets rewarded for doing so, what are they going to do? Well, they're going to go back and do the same thing again, especially if they're, they're, they've got a chance of winning that. You're, you raised kids, Bob. I mean, if you, <laughs> if you didn't punish a kid. What would you expect that kid to, to do? To continue to do whatever he got away with, right? That's, they're going to continue that behavior until they understand that that's not the right thing to do. There are consequences for, for poor behavior. You know, I, one, of, one of my favorite scripture readings is the woman caught in adultery, and after everybody leaves, which they do, they all disappear. Nobody wants to throw the first stone because Jesus told them who's ever without sin, throw the first stone. He turns to the woman and he says... Um, where is everyone gone? And she says, they've all left, sir. Um, there's no one to, is there anyone to accuse you? No. He says, and I don't accuse you either. But then he uses my favorite words, go forth and sin no more. He doesn't say, okay, give it another go tomorrow. Let's <laughs> just see how this goes, right? right, right. Let's, let's try again. There was it, a catch. There was a catch. You're there's, forgiven. I, I don't th- condemn you either. I don't condemn you either, but go forth and sin no more. The whole purpose of, of justice is not to beat people down. It's not to stop them. It's to help the world recognize that you can't do this activity. It's the way our society is set. This is inappropriate. Don't do this. And there will be penalties if you, if you follow this continued form of action. That's what Jesus told us not to do. Don't go back and do it again. And... I think we all need to understand that, right? I think we all certainly want to forgive. I mean, my goodness, I need to be forgiven, and I try very hard to forgive others. But if it's going on consistently, the way you've described, Ray, where these things happen continually, you've got to do something. You've got to change the behavior. You've got to keep this from occurring. So let's consider the implications of this. Um, You know, the actual social, political debate as to what is the proper policy with regard to reforming the justice system? Well, that's important for a lot of people to talk about. But for us, when we talk about it, the important thing is really how does this fit into our relationship with God? Is there a God? And if there is, the relationship we have with God is the most important thing, period, without qualification, without reservation, without exception, without nothing, without anything. That is the most important thing. So how does this fit into that picture? Well, I would submit the title for this program would be Outlawing Love. 
you know, if we say um, that there is that that you are justified in this, you are saying, in effect, there is no evil. This prosecutor, yeah, among his writings, uh, talks about people being the victim of conditions. He even talks, he even talk about the fact that. Um, more serious crimes are the subject of conditions. He put out a memo when he, when he first got into office. And among the, th the changes that he uh, mandated for all of uh, the prosecutors in his office was, um, well, among them were these things, will not seek, the office will not seek a carceral sentence. You're not going to incarcerate somebody. Nobody goes to jail except, nobody goes to jail. Nobody goes to jail except for homicides, domestic violence, felonies, some sex crimes, and public corruption. There was a list basically of four things. Otherwise, you don't go to jail. Um, and if you do have to put somebody in jail, no matter what they did, no more than 20 years. No more than 20 years. We will not seek a sentence of life without parole. So if there's somebody who commits a very brutal murder, maybe several murders, you don't put them in jail forever. Can't do it. Um, let's see. Armed robbers who use guns get charged with a misdemeanor. Uh, convicted criminals caught with weapons, a misdemeanor. Drug dealers, misdemeanor possession. These are crimes that would otherwise draw sentences of 25 years, 7 years, etc. Uh, we're just not going to prosecute these people. Now, what does that say? Well, according to the head of the New York Police Department Detectors Endowment Association, this gives criminals the roadmap to freedom from prosecution and control of our streets. And so, you know, what he, like I said, what, what, the, what the DA talks about is the fact that even serious crimes are and of, often are the product of social conditions you know, I mean, like I said, you draw a bad lot in life. You live in poverty. Uh, of course, poverty is a, a Christian virtue, but put that aside for the moment. You know, you get a bum deal from the world and society. And so this is effectively not your fault. At the same time that we have a lot of people telling us that from the prosecutorial perspective, we also have... Scientists telling us our brains are hardwired. A lot of the things we do are because the way that these electrical you know, synapses fire and the way they're just simply trained because of, to fire because of patterns of, of how they fire because of experiences that we've had earlier in life. You know, before you had uh, psychologists like B.F. Skinner talking about behavioral psychology, um, now we've got uh, you know, people telling us we do things uh, because, and we're made to do them uh, not because of ingrained, you know, behaviors, but because our brains uh, have these patterns of electrical uh, reactions that occur inside our brains. And so, really, again, we're having society tell us it's not your fault. It's not your fault. And if that is the message, there's no evil. People are doing. People are not bad who do these petty crimes. Well, you know, if you commit an armed robbery with a gun, for example. Um, petty crime, not your fault. Uh, so 
you are saying to those people, it is not your fault. It is, you are the victim of these conditions. And so then you're not doing something necessarily bad. You are not a bad person. I think that's behind a lot of the reform movement, that these people are not bad people. And of course, that's the heart of the Christian message. Nobody is bad per se. They're not bad uh, in the sense that, you know, if, if it's not that their nature is bad. We have a proclivity to sin. That's part of our human nature. But we're also born and made in the image of God. We're not bad as a matter of our makeup, uh, you know, the, you know our, our composition. It, we're, we don't have to be bad. We can do bad things, but we can, we're also entitled to redemption. Again, the kicker, uh, going back to your story, Bob, is that we have to sin no more. We have to want to ask for the forgiveness. Um, so if the message is really, well, it's not your fault, then you really haven't done a bad thing. It's something that you were caused to do. So it's a societal problem. It's not your problem. Oh, it's, it's, definitely, a, it's definitely it's a societal yeah, problem. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And that's the message that's going out to people. And there is a problem with that. There is a big problem with that. Because it is our fault. There is evil. The writings from St. Paul talk about a fight between good and evil. St. Paul says, let love be sincere. Hate what is evil. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil. Conquer evil with good. There is a fight between good and evil. Do we not feel it? Do we not? St. Paul felt it. He talks about he wants to do good, but he, but he still you know, does these evil things, and he's at war. There's a war going on inside himself. I know. There's been a war that has raged inside me between, you know, always doing what I know to be the good thing and doing something else instead. Um, every, every one of us has that, right? There's, there's no doubt each one of us has both sides. And then we have to understand how to choose between those, eh? Everybody has that battle. There is a fight. There is a war between good and evil. And if you then tell the people on the streets of New York who are— Um, you know, in conditions that are difficult. And, you know, uh, know, they don't have a lot of, you know, don't have money for a lot of things. Uh, Might not, you know, be easy. They might even not know where their next meal is coming from. I mean, living in tough situations. And then you tell them there's no evil. That, I mean, if that is the message, there is no evil. What are you doing? What are you doing? I think what you end up doing is you outlaw love. There is a battle between evil and good. If you declare that there is no evil, you also basically declare there is no love. I mean, look at it. I mean, let's flip it around. You do evil because of social conditions or because your brain is hardwired. That's why you do evil things. Well, then you can't really, you don't really think of them as evil anymore, but like I said, put that aside, no, put that aside for the moment. Um, we'll flip it around. Supposing you do what we might otherwise call a good thing. Supposing you exhibit love to somebody else. Well, 
if doing a bad thing is not your fault, is doing a good thing something to be accorded to your credit? There need there is a fight between good and evil. If we lose this image, if we lose this perspective on life as you know, being one that's subject to this battle, we lose sight of both sides of this equation. How would you like that? I got an equation thing. You got an up. equation. I loved it. I, I, I thought we were going to start doing calculus here shortly. I was excited for the opportunity. That, that, that's as far as I go. The word okay. is as far, okay. as, I, okay. as, far, as far as I go. Um, we're going to lose sight of love as well. I mean, that's, that is, um, I mean, that has, that has huge repercussions. Um, or maybe we're just overdoing this, right? We're overdoing this. Well, you know, if you tell people it's not your fault, maybe they're going to. Would you not expect, Bob, we said, you said before, hey, I've got a kid. I don't punish him. Guess what happens? He's going to do the same thing again. Well, that's what's happening in Manhattan. And in strikingly fast manner, this man came to office in January of 2022. There was an article um, in April 23rd, late, late April of that year. He'd only been in office you know, for months at this point. And in Manhattan, in the 6th Precinct, which patrols the West Village, if you're familiar with Manhattan, there was an 84% spike in major crime compared to 2021 year-to-date numbers. You compare January to April in 2021, January to April 2022, an 84% spike. He comes into office, announces, I'm not going to put these people in jail, 84% in four months. Uh, in the ninth precinct, there's a 54% jump, same time period. Uh, for example, Grand Larcities went from 147 to 308. Four-month period, 147. Grand larcenies, doubled. Burglaries, 59 to 100, almost doubled, 70% rise. Robberies, vehicle thefts. Vehicle thefts increased, uh, increased fourfold. I mean, huge. These are huge numbers. Um, and let's see. Um, yeah. So anyways, I could give you more of the numbers, but it's, it's the same story. Ray, think, think for a second. Why do people do things that are wrong? One— they might understand that God says this is wrong, to steal, to follow the commandments, to do those sort of things. If they don't have God, they might listen to their parents who told them not to do wrong, to do right, to do the golden rule, right? But if they have neither of those, if neither of those help, they then have the law that says don't do this or you will be punished. So if somebody doesn't believe in God and somebody doesn't believe in their parents and what they did, and you take away the part that says you will be punished if you do this by the law. What is there to stop anyone at that point? You've now, you've now taken everything away that tells you not to do something. And, of course, it's going to double or triple or do whatever it is that you, you just suggested. It is going up if you take that away. Now, a lot of people are saying that these, this crime situation is reminiscent of uh, the 1970s and 1980s. Um, and to go back and give some perspective on this, the violent crime rate in this na nationwide uh, was 
161 violent crimes per 100,000 people in 1960. 1960, 161 crimes per 100,000 people. Uh, 161 violent crimes per 100,000, 1960. Ten years later, it had jumped to 364. More than doubled. More mm -hmm. than doubled in 10 years. Um, by 1981, you go through the 70s and then the 80s, it rose, it more than doubled again to 758 mm -hmm. nationwide numbers. Well, that huge jump in crime caused some people to look at the way they were doing policing. And in New York City, um, they came up with the broken windows theory. And what that meant was that um, petty crime, petty crime had to be gone after. You stop things early. You send out the message, every crime will be prosecuted. Completely different from the current, mm -hmm. uh, current ideas. Crime, if you're going to look at uh, a justice system and say whether or not it's propagating more crime or reducing crime, if you go on that basis uh, and try to judge the results between the two systems, we'll find that the current ones, as we said, in a four-month period, produce massive spikes. Well, what about the other system, the more aggressive prosecutorial system? Did that reduce crime? Well, it did. Violent crime in New York City, New York City, over the past 30 years, after after this, you know, spot, after this peak in 1990, over the past 30 years, violent crime in New York City plummeted 70 percent, 70 percent. And so, by the same amount that crimes are increasing now, in a short period, they were reduced in the prior period. 1990, there were two. In 1990, there were 2,245 people murdered in New York City. 2018, 289. So a drop of tenfold. Yeah, one-tenth, mm -hmm. yeah, one-tenth. A decline, yeah. Um, and there are other numbers that basically tell the same story. So if one system produces more crime, one system produces less crime, which is which is the better way to go? Well, that's certainly one factor. Other, other people may say, well, there, there are other reasons that are involved as well, other things to look at. Well, that, of course, is based on the idea. I mean, there might still be benefits, to other benefits to society from this new, uh, more lenient type of uh, so, you know, reform. But that's predicated on the notion, all, that is, all those other benefits predicated on the notion that, yeah, these social conditions are what cause crime. And that really is not these people's fault. Well, this is not a new question. As a matter of fact, this was a question that was considered back in the 1950s. And there was a psychologist, uh, Stanton Seminow, and a psychiatrist, Samuel Yokelson. And they actually believed that crime was caused by social conditions. And they wanted to uh, conduct a study to prove that. And they began a 17-year study, thousands of hours testing 250 inmates in the District of Columbia. And to their surprise, what they discovered was that crime could not be traced to environment, poverty, or oppression. Instead, crime was a result of individuals making, as they put it, wrong moral choices. There's another book put out in 1977, The Criminal Personality. Uh, oh, excuse me, this was their book in 1970, The Criminal Personality. And they concluded that 
The answer to crime is a conversion of the wrongdoer to a more responsible lifestyle. And 19, 10 years later, 1987, a couple of Harvard, Harvard professors came to similar conclusions in a book, Crime and Human Nature. So it's a matter of human nature. I don't know. Sounds like that war between good and evil that St. Paul talked about. Um, so if this is in fact the case, if this is in fact the case, what are we as Catholics, how are we to think about this from the Catholic perspective? What is being done here? Well, there's a couple of things. As I say, first off, there's this idea from St. Paul that there is a fight between good and evil. And what also does he talk about? He talks about engaging in that fight, conquering evil with good, using love instead of evil, making your life one that is filled more with acts of love and kindness than evil, to prepare you for the test. What test? The test, the final test. What we're talking about here is no less than eternal salvation. Um, St. Paul mentions this business about minds being clouded. He says, and you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind because of evil deeds, hostile in mind. I mean, he sounds, what a psychologist this guy is. I mean, only 2,000 years ago, before anybody even heard the name Sigmund Freud. Hostile in mind because of evil deeds. E evil actions affect the way you think. You, we talked before about people wanting to feel justified. And that's what happens, does it not? And you begin to think things are okay. And maybe then you think, well, more of the same is okay. Or things that are even worse are okay. Um, the Catechism of the Catholic Church talks about the same thing. There's a section in the Catechism of the Catholic Church talks about the proliferation of sin, and it says, sin creates a proclivity to sin. It engenders vice by repetition. You know, we don't have to be experts in this. Yeah, you don't punish a child, guess what? He's going to do it again. You know, repetition, repetition, repetition. This, this is what can happen. Your minds get clouded. And if the test is eternal salvation, if you are clouding people's judgment, if they're, you're clouding their thinking about, you know, the need to do good versus evil, if there really is no more fight between good and evil, Paul talks about conquering, conquering evil. There is a dramatic fight, and the ultimate test is the salvation of your soul. That hinges on how this fight turns out. And then you cloud people's minds as to whether or not there's even a fight to be worried about? Is your soul at risk? There's no doubt, Ray. I, you know, as my life has gone a lot of different directions and along, and being 63 years old, that means a lot of time for that to have happened. But as I have moved farther and farther away from God in periods of time in my life, more and more things became 
acceptable to me. More and more sin. And the sin sort of bred more sin, and it continued. And the exact opposite happened as well, which is, thank goodness, it, 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 the trend sort of reversed itself. And as I did less, as I caused less trouble in smaller things, then the bigger stuff sort of disappears, goes away. You don't even think of those evil, horrible things. And it's a matter of getting your mind to understand that these various things are, are evil and they, they lead to one another. And I think most psychologists would tell you that if you get away with something, you will continue to do that behavior or continue and move along uh, in that same direction. And I know for myself, that's exactly right. That has occurred. The more I get away with things, the more I want to do that. And it really is through the love of God, the discipline of following his commands that allows me to live a life that's acceptable, sustainable, um, and hopefully for the kids as well, right? Uh, hopefully each of us as a parent teaches those children the same thing. Hopefully it doesn't get to where the law is deciding whether our kids do something or not. Hopefully we're teaching them right from wrong and keeping them from getting there. Teaching right from wrong. When over a 30-year period in New York City, crimes decreased so dramatically because they believed in this broken windows theory. You can't break a window um, you know, without having to suffer some punishment. Even the smallest petty crime had to be addressed. Are you not sending out a message? Wrong is wrong. And then are you not doing what the psychologist talked about? Helping people live a moral, moral lifestyle. Are you not telling them there is wrong, there is good and, and there's good and bad, and every, every wrong is a wrong? Are you not accentuating this idea of this battle? And if you accentuate the battle between good and evil and drawing attention to it and like putting it up on a billboard, are you not then helping people maybe to do what these psychologists from Harvard and and the psychologist from 1950 said, changing people's attitudes towards crime. You know, we talked about the, the difference in the statistics of crime rates. Well, now we're talking about changing the way people think about it. And if, you, and if we saw a dramatic change, if we're right about what we're saying, then in addition to the dramatic changes in these statistics, you're also going to think that, well, maybe I should find instances where people's thinking is changed by a good act. St. Paul says, conquer evil with good. So you would think that, you know, there are occasions when a good act can change a person from evil. Would it not, would we not be able to, you know, change minds? Couldn't we find this in that situation? Well, for example, the famous uh, Protestant John Wesley. John Wesley was robbed as he was returning from a church service one night. As the bandit was leaving, Wesley called out, Stop! I have something more to give you. He called, the bandit was leaving him alone, and he said, No, I want you to come back here because I've got something more to give you. The surprised robber paused. My friend said, Wesley, You may live to regret this sort of life. If you ever do, Here's something to remember. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us all from sin. The thief hurried away, and Wesley prayed that his words would bear fruit. 
Okay. You're thinking, well, this guy's gone forever. What, well, you know, what did I do? I said a simple thing. This guy probably brushed it off. You know, I probably couldn't care less. Years later, Wesley was greeting people after a Sunday service when he was approached by a stranger. It surprised Wesley to learn that this visitor, now a Christian and a successful businessman, was the same person who had robbed him years before. I owe it all to you, said the transformed man. Oh no, my friend Wesley exclaimed, not to me, but to the precious blood of Christ that cleanses us all from sin. I'll give you another example. This guy, he was co-founder of the South African Satanic Church. And he gave an interview on a, a South African radio talk show one day. And he said, I don't believe in Jesus, and I don't believe Jesus Christ exists. And he also talks about, uh, later on, he talks about, um, well, he described himself at that point in his life as being a, quote, monster, and, quote, an ugly person. Um, and there are details about his life which are not important to go into here. But anyways, he gave this uh, interview on the radio, said these things. But following the interview, the interviewer from the radio station approached him. She came to me after the interview, after I said that, and she hugged me, and she held me in a way that I have never been loved, never been loved. That's all she did. She just said it was nice to meet me in person. A week later on WhatsApp, through her status, I saw this woman is a Christian. I've never had a Christian do that. Isn't that a sad commentary? I never show, experienced a Christian show that much love and acceptance unconditionally after I said the things I said. Here's a person who declared he doesn't believe Christ exists, declaring this to a person who does believe Christ exists, and instead of shunning him or turning him away, she showed him what he called unconditional love. He said that I have met thousands of Satanists over the last three years when he was apparently leading this church. And I'm not saying the intentions are bad. They are extremely broken and extremely hurt. Now, this is what these justice system reformers are noticing. People are hurt and they want to help it. And they want to help them by showing what they believe is unconditional love. But there are people in positions of authority, and they have a responsibility to society at large. And, you know, it's not a personal act that's being done. I think this is the difference. This co-founder of the Satanic Church received Love. He called it unconditional love. You don't receive love from a DA's office. You don't receive love from the government. You receive love from a person. And that's what he experienced. When the DA's office, when a DA's office says, we're not going to prosecute you, they don't say it's because we love you. That may be what they're trying to do, but they don't, that message doesn't come 
through if that's in fact what they're trying to do. That's a big difference. You have to experience love to change your mind about evil. There is a fight between good and evil. St. Paul said, you can conquer evil with good. John Wesley proved it. This radio station host proved it. They conquered, conquered evil. With what? With love. And if we are telling people there is no evil, then we have to be also sending the message there's no such thing as love. Because, again, it's not our fault. It's not to our credit. Um, we do things because not of what we decide. We're, we're made to do things. We're caused to do things. We are reactors. We're not actors. But we are actors. Everything we do, every moment of the day is because we choose to do it. And if we're making choices that hurt other people, the only way that thinking is ever going to change is if that thinking is conquered with some personal, some, some real, some authentic love, something that you can feel in the heart. You don't get that from a DA's memo to his, the prosecutors in his office that we're going to let people off if they commit armed robbery with a misdemeanor and they're not going to go to jail. We're not going to pursue incarceration except, you know, if there's, except in the case of a homicide. So if you kill somebody in an armed robbery, you go to jail. If not, you don't. That's not, I don't think there's any message of love in that. That's just a, a set of rules of, of play, right? That's, that, that, that's not an act of love. That's, hey, here are the rules, and these are new rules, and we're going to play by this set of rules that now only so many years and any of these are not going to be, you know, pushed. Any of the, the, uh, um, any of the crimes are not going to be pursued. That's just a, a, a new field of play. Yeah, it's, it's, it's simply a, a new field of play. I think what, what's actually taking place, I'll put it this way, what's actually taking place is people are being handed over to evil from the best intentions from the very best intentions, people are being handed over to evil. There is a fight between the good and the evil in our hearts, minds, and our souls. And you're telling people, you win. You do something evil. You do something that hurts somebody. You steal from somebody. You know, if we're going to be compassionate towards the evildoers, and that's any time somebody commits a crime, it is an act of evil. Every time I sin during the course of the day, which are many, I'm hurting some other person. And sometimes, you know, even if there's nobody else involved, I'm hurting myself. But so you're hurting a person every time. Uh, and uh, so if you can do that, and it's okay. It's not your fault. Uh, you're handing them over. Handing them over to evil. Sure you are, right? 
All of this goes back, I, I think, as a parent to a, a little kid. A little kid does wrong, and you say, time out. You've got to sit down in this chair and think about what you did for a couple minutes. Now, that, that's an eternity. Two minutes to a kid is, you know, a, a, a four-year-old child is forever. But if you can do that, if you enforce that, if you make them sit there and make that realization, they put together, don't do this, bad things happen, I have to sit in the chair for two minutes, I, I have this time out, and they begin to understand what is right and wrong, what is good and evil, not to do evil, but to do good, they begin to figure that out. Take that equation away. There is no, no responsibility. There is no threat of difficulties coming. And you're teaching that at a level where people die and people lose their property. Oh, my goodness, you're, you're asking for, for, for real problems. You know, people often look at, the, look at the church and look at these teachings and look at these commandments and say, they're harsh. They're just harsh. And people aren't free if you have all these rules. And what is the district attorney doing but saying, well, we don't really have these rules? They're saying, well, you know, people need to be freer. And if we impose upon them all these rules, we're restricting their freedom. We're caging them in. And the more you cage people in, the more you're going to get bad results. The more they're going to resent being caged in, et cetera, et cetera. Well, it's, there's, there's a confusion about true freedom. There's freedom to do whatever you want. And then there's freedom to reach out to God. Freedom to reach out to God. God is infinite. God is above the earth, in the earth, all around the earth. He is, he's not even in, he's not even bound by the confines of space. There's freedom to do what we want here on this planet within the time, the short span of time we have in our lives, within the small little areas that we, that we live in. Or there's freedom to reach to the heavens, to reach to God. That is real freedom. To reach into eternity, that's the freedom we ought to be concerned about. That's the freedom we need to care about. There's a battle between good and evil. If we say there is no battle, we are handing people over to evil. We are getting rid of the idea of evil. We're getting rid of the idea of good. If there is no evil, there is no good. We're getting rid of, then we're getting rid of love, of the need for love. It's, uh, as a Catholic, as a Christian, as a non-believing person, when we look at these social policies that these progressive prosecutors are implementing and asking the question, is this right, is this wrong, we need to be concerned about the people, the people that are committing the crimes, as well as the people that they're committing the crimes against. We can't be compassionate to just, you know, one group of people and completely forget and ignore the other group. St. Paul talked about rulers, district attorneys, if you will, be mindful of the fact that God is watching and there is no partiality with God. And if we're going to be stewards of, of God's 
of God's graces and blessings, then we have to show no partiality either. We have to be concerned with all the people all the time. Criminal justice reform, talk about it, debate it, pursue it, but not at the expense of people's moral, uh, their moral capabilities, not at the expense of their eternal soul. Anyways, that's our program for today. Um, we hope uh, that you found it interesting, uh, maybe thought-provoking, hopefully thought-provoking. And we're going to end the program, as we always do, with uh, a prayer from, uh, from Bob. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we are your children. We are yours. Allow us to constantly reach to you to understand what to do. These are all difficult things that we've talked about and discussed. Allow us to truly see your heart and follow your path, your love, your compassion, to realize that all the folks that are out there are made in your image. They are your loved ones. Allow us to treat them that way and to bring them to the better good. Allow us to understand that direction and to do the right things for the children of the world, for the adults of the world, for those in New York City or here in St. Louis. We ask, Lord, that we can always follow you in whatever it is you say and love one another with all our hearts and souls. We pray all this through the wonderful and glorious name of your Son, who is our Lord and Savior, and that is Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless.